Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. Welcome, authors and readers. Before our interview today, I'd like you to hear from a very talented team of cover designers. If you're creating a new book, check them out. After untold hours and thousands of words, your book deserves a cover that's better than a generic font tacked onto a bland stock image. Brett Grimes and Joshua Unruh are marketing professionals with decades of experience in giving products unique looks and voices. They understand that to get someone to check out your book, you need marketing that tells a story about your story. Visit brettgrimes.com slash over 50 today for the cover your story deserves. That's brettgrimes.com slash O-V-E-R five zero. Don't let your book get lost on the shelf. My guest today is a Manhattan-based writer who works in many genres, fiction, nonfiction, musical theater, and children's literature. She draws much of her inspiration from the incredible stories she heard growing up about her family's remarkable experiences. She fictionalized her grandmother's story of a young mother surviving the Russian Revolution in a historical novel, then moved to a nonfiction release which spotlights a daughter's perspective on a bygone era and a man who struggled before ultimately achieving financial and personal success. Her latest book is a humorous personal recollection of the challenging year she and her family spent while following their dream to live abroad. Her passion for the arts and storytelling originated in ballet and drama and often relates to her Russian Jewish heritage. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Kira Robinoff. Thank you, Julia. It's lovely to be here. Kira, as you know, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? Yes, what took me so long? Well, I guess, like most people, life. (laughs) I, I had work, got married, had children, parents to take care of. And, you know, the usual, but um, maybe more than anything, I'd say it was lack of confidence. Um, I, I knew I had a great story. My father's, he was born in far Eastern Siberia in 1911 and um, in 1920, the peaceful city where he and his family lived was overtaken by a band of Bolshevik partisans and rebels. His father was imprisoned and then brutally murdered along with like 90% of the population 
My grandmother, who wasn't even 30, had to spend the frozen winter eluding capture, hiding with her five young children, mother, mother-in-law, an epileptic sister-in-law, um, you know, taking refuge in warehouses, pigsties, and opium dens. Um, it was an amazing story. And everybody who heard it said, this should be a book, it should be a movie. And working in film and theater, I, I agreed it would make a fabulous film. But of course, most movie scripts are based on uh, books, and I just didn't feel equipped to write one, at least not one um, of this magnitude, because being a James Michener fan, I felt the, the book should be a sprawling novel that covered the history of the time and place and, and follow multiple storylines, something I just, you know, I didn't feel capable of it. Um, and not being fluent in Russian, uh, and because there was nothing left of the city of Nikolaevs to visit, it was very difficult to research it. I did have, um, I did have a lot of uh, interviews that I'd done with my father and um, many relatives, but my father had been eight years old at the time, and I didn't know how to tell the story from a child's point of view, um, how he'd know what was really going on. Um, I also wasn't sure how to portray my family, the victims, because um, as sympathetic, because, you know, what wasn't the revolution about the people uh, throwing off the dominating uh, wealthy landowners. Of course, my, my father's family weren't landowners. Um, they were self-made entrepreneurs, lawyers, businessmen. Um, even my grandfather, who was killed, was the editor of the local newspaper. But I just, I just, for years, I just struggled with how to tell the story. Should it be a novel, a biography, a memoir? And from whose point of view I should tell it? Um, I'd written a 200-page film treatment, but Further than that, I just never got. Um, flash forward a decade, my family moved to Rome for a year um, and we had quite the adventure or misadventure. Um, but thinking that um, that was my story, I thought maybe here's something that I would be more equipped to, to write. So I, I kept a, I wrote emails to my friends and everybody about my life there. Um, and when I came back, I, I actually wrote a manuscript, but when I showed it to my writer friends and writing groups, everybody said, no, 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 it's your father's story. That's the one that's interesting. And of course that did wonders more for my confidence again, <laughs> but I decided, all right, let's try it again. And, and this time I decided rather than telling it from my father's point of view um, and feeling like I had to be faithful to every single thing he told me, I sh maybe I should write it from my grandmother's point of view because being a mother myself, I could suddenly, uh, well, not suddenly, but I could now uh, relate to losing my husband, my, my everything. And um, so, uh, and, and because she hadn't told me the story herself, I felt like I could um, embellish or make up things, you know, um, though most of it is pretty close to what I've heard. Anyway, that's kind of long story short how I <laughs> came to finally write Red Winter as a well, novel. It's just a fascinating story. And and um, and then you went back and did write um, the story about living in Rome. So you write in so many <laughs> different genres. I don't I, know I do. how you're led to each one at which particular time. Well, 
I think that's partly my downfall because, you know, I do, I, I like to write children's books in rhyme and I want to write my own memoir and then I've got historical things, but I don't know. I just, I, I don't, I just don't want to write just to sell, even though that would probably be a, be a wiser path to follow, but I just have these stories and just feel like I need to write them. And, uh, so, but my problem is always, it's always starting, you know, which, which, which point of view and which, where, you know, what angle you're going to tell it. Um, when I wrote my the second book about my father, everyone had wanted me to, you know, after writing Red Winter, they were like, when are you going to write about the next episodes? And there were, you know, my father's, well, my grandmother's life after she left Russia was thankfully a lot quieter, <laughs> but it wasn't as exciting. Um, and it was my father's life that really sounded more uh, like it's where I should take off. But it's very difficult to write about family, especially, you know, your parents falling in love, whatever. <laughs> um, and Again, I, I just struggled and, you know, trying to make it a novel. Uh, but I had all this, these interviews and transcripts. So I decided to write them down and it would be a good thing to have them digitized anyway. And then I would figure out where to go from there. But um, when I did, I realized that my father, his story in his own words was really pretty fascinating of his own. So that's how I came to write the rest of my father's story, which is called his story. Um, and as for my urge to roam, um, it had started as a travelogue sort of, and, and, you know, I, I had been feeling very fat and unhappy with my life and just needing a change. And I always loved traveling. And when my husband said, you know, I'm going to be traveling a lot abroad, would we like to move to Rome? <laughs> I thought, well, here's a chance. I'll become sexy and sultry and, and migraine free. And of course, life never follows <laughs> the path that you want. And whatever could go wrong did go wrong. Um, but uh, again, I wrote the manuscript, I came back, I showed it to my writing friends, and, and they said, it's not so much your life in Rome that's we find interesting, but it's your relationship with your mother, who it turned out was really the reason behind why I felt like I needed to move. <laughs> and um, because I was so close to her and she read everything that I wrote, it was very hard to be honest about what had, you know, how I felt about our stifling relationship. So it wasn't until after she passed away that I really was able to explore that. But that was um, an amazingly therapeutic way to deal with the loss. And uh, I don't know, I just kind of follow uh, what is pushing me, I guess. <laughs> well, and I, I think, you know, writing memoir is certainly very challenging, especially if our parents and grandparents or siblings are still alive and 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 it's just so difficult to be honest and yet not hurt everyone's feelings you know yeah. I grew up in the south and we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings we don't want to talk about the truth we want to sweep it all under the rug so. right except that's what everybody wants to hear who's reading the books right <laughs> yes and it's so interesting you know the push and pull between mother and daughter yeah it's certainly a dynamic that we all deal 
deal with sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, you're right. As a matter of fact, the book I'm working on now is, again, a mother-daughter story, this time with my mother and her mother. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a, a mother-daughter novel or a memoir of three generations or maybe even four, but it's the the it's the journey that um, excites me so much, which is why I'm so bad at, at the uh, marketing side. <laughs> I, I just, and know. it's kind of like shrinking ourselves, you know, when we get all these words on paper and, and we try to figure out those relationships, it it's, it's like counseling for us, you know, it, it, is. it really is therapeutic. It's great. I love it. And I mean, I just love being in the room with the characters and and I hate coming out and, and having to go on Facebook and Instagram and, you know, uh, and so I'm terrible at that. <laughs> well, most most writers want to write. Right. They don't exactly. want to promote or market themselves. So that's a difficult situation for most of us. But what are you doing with each of these books? Are you um, using an agent? Or are you going through a hybrid, a small press, or are you self-publishing? No, I and you know my dream was always to have an agent. Of course, an agent who would help me flesh out the story and edit and stuff, and then get published by a major house. And we all know how that story goes. Um, and I tried over and over to get an agent. Um, but uh, I would I would get comments and and but never a, a contract, and the comments only drove me to rewrite the story over and over, you know, per what I heard last, and it wasn't until um, my good friend Patrice Fitzgerald, who um, is an author, a singer, a lawyer, and and self published many books of her own and of other people, she'd been telling me for years to self publish and. Finally, reluctantly, I listened to her, um, and uh, with a lot of help from her, uh, I was able to publish Red Winter. And actually, it ended up being such a freeing experience. I found it. Um, I was so happy to have control, creative control over the, the cover of the book and the layout. Um, to not have to wait two years to have it published um, and uh, to tell it the way I wanted to tell it. And, and most of all, I was really happy that I was able to publish it while my mother was still alive so I could show it to her. And um, so uh, since then, I've, I've self-published all my books. And, and I really, the process of, of the you know, publishing is really, I find it quite another creative outlet. Um, so yeah, I um, I'm glad I did that. I, of course, I would love to have a publicist or a, a house behind me. But then even uh, you know, famous authors are doing it all themselves these days anyway. That's very true. The big five publishers are still requiring all of their authors to do most of their own publicity. So right. we're all in the same boat. That's right. <laughs> Did writing that first book change your process of writing? Oh, yes. Um, uh, it was very validating to finally be able to call myself an author. Um, I didn't feel guilty anymore about locking myself in a room and spending hours writing or researching or, or just thinking uh, or just taking walks to work out, 
you know, scenes. It just, it wasn't a hobby anymore. And people, you know, took me seriously. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I wish I had done it so much, you know, so many years earlier, but as with kids, <laughs> I waited too long. <laughs> No, it's never too late. You know, we're, <laughs> I'm interviewing people in their 70s, 80s and right. 90s, and they're still writing beautiful work. So That's I think great. we can do it the rest of our lives. Right. It's so inspiring. And what else would we be doing in retirement if we didn't have another job? I just exactly. think it's so important. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's true. such a great legacy, you know, to our families for you to be able to put that history down so that that your family members, you know, will be able to know what actually happened in their, in their history. I think that's just so important. Right. And, oh gosh, do I wish I had asked more questions. <laughs> that's what I encourage young people to do because, you know, they have a camera in their hand at all times right. is they can record and listen back to voices because I think we lose voices first after we lose somebody, you right. know, I would like to hear my mother's voice. I would like to hear my grandmother's voice. And so people can record that now. And I think it's so important to do that. It's true. It's true. I, I, I have videos of, of of my parents and even my grandmother. And it's weird to listen to them because they all had Russian accents. And I never thought that. But when I listen now, I realize how heavy they were. And, and um, because we forget, know, we forget yeah. those voices. And it brings them to life. And it does. Uh, and they're in the room with you, you know, when you see them on the screen. I just love right. that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's great. I'm, I mean, I'm really, really enjoying this part of my life more than I ever thought I would. Well, I know you don't like social media, but have you found any publicity that's worked for you or maybe something you've tried that, that didn't work? Um, well, I mean, I do, I do have a website and, uh, a, a Facebook page and Instagram that I rarely use, but, um, I've done, I've done fairs sometimes book fairs um i have given i've actually given classes on um something called pathways it's like a senior um extended learning um and so i i've talked about various books um also in the building that i live in you know i i really i honestly don't promote myself as much as i should um because I just, my main reason for doing this is mostly to write and to get it down. And um, maybe I, I always tell myself, maybe after the next book, then I'll, I'll, I'll publicize them all together. <laughs> but we'll see. Um, it's not my strong point. Well, you're certainly building quite a catalog. And, and I think, you know, the more that your name is out there and these different genres, it's going to bring a lot of publicity to you and your nonfiction and even your, your creative nonfiction maybe um, gives you a platform to speak about, you know, you can, mm -hmm. you can speak about the Russian revolution and you can speak to, you know, topics like that. And that gets more publicity for your books. Right. Maybe you could be my publicist. <laughs> I should have been a publicist in my yeah, real you're, life. You're great. <laughs> I can promote you a lot better than I promote myself. Likewise. I do so much better with my friends. Yes. 
What passage have you brought to share today? And we'd like to hear you read from one of your books. Okay, well, I've got my book, Red Winter, my first book. Um, and I'm going to just read um, part of the first chapter. So hopefully it doesn't need, require much setup. Um, it's set in Nikolaevsk on a moor in far eastern Siberia, February 29th, 1920. Open up, open up in the name of the people, came the impatient demand. It felt like an earthquake was reverberating in my head. I wrestled with my comforter, realizing I'd been having a nightmare. But the pounding continued, growing more insistent. Across the room, Ilya was pulling on his robe and reaching for the door, looking as if he was trying to slip out before I awoke. I could barely make out his retreating figure, but for the dim glow of the lamp he carried. What's going on? I called, my voice an octave higher than usual. The noise hadn't stopped and I realized it was coming from our front door. Rough male voices were thundering from outside. It sounded like an angry mob. Ilya, stay here, I called, please. He glanced back over his shoulder, then ducked into the hall. I reached for my housecoat and hurried to be close to my husband. Shivering, not so much from the Siberian winter as from panic, I hugged myself to keep warm. All right, all right, I'm coming, Ilya shouted. I rushed down the narrow corridor after him and the wooden planks creaked under my feet. Ilya appeared outwardly unflustered, his posture erect and his face serious, but fearless. Wait, I pleaded as he reached to unlatch the bolt. If you don't open the door immediately, we will open it for you, the voice snarled from the other side. I clutched Ilya's arm and felt my alarm shoot through him like an electric shock. Shlubichka, he squeezed my shoulder with one arm, then threw open the door. An enormous figure filled the frame. I recognized him as the man who had spoken at the rally in the town square the day before. Jelizin. How could anyone forget such a creature? A coarse black beard encircled his red face like the dirty wire tendrils of a beet just pulled from the earth. The frigid air turned his breath into puffs of smoke. Small icicles clung to his whiskers and his eyes shone from the cold but the tears in them weren't sympathetic in the least. In his long fur coat, he resembled the bear whose skin he was wrapped in. A long rifle was slung over one shoulder and the butt of a revolver poked from the belt that encircled his thick waist. Behind him lurked more than a dozen men, some on horseback, others on skis. The scene looked hazy because with each breath the men exhaled, they disappeared behind a frosty screen. It reminded me of the shadow puppet shows I sometimes took the children to. Dark shapes loomed against the white drifts of snow, which reflected the faint glow of the moon. The animals snorted restlessly, the horses and the men. The rest of the street remained quietly in slumber. Jelizin stepped across the threshold and entered the house. Ilya Semyonovich Kapsan? He didn't bother to stomp the snow off his hefty boots and swept several mounds into the hallway with him. It melted slowly into a puddle at our feet. I have here a warrant for your arrest. He shoved a crumpled paper forward, and in the brief instant that Ilya considered what to do, the beast lost his temper and threw the document on the floor, forcing Ilya to bend down to retrieve it. Get your coat and come with me, he growled. 
I tightened my grasp on my husband's arm. No, please, you mustn't. You can't. I turned toward the interloper. Please, I begged him. There must be a mistake. I knew I sounded desperate, but I didn't care. My pulse was pounding in my ears. What's going on? What have I done? Ilya addressed Zelazin. You will learn later. Can't this wait until morning? Ilya appealed. I'm not going to disappear, and I can't leave my wife alone in the middle of the night in the state she's in. Ha! <laughs> Your wife won't be alone. Ugly, frightening thoughts scrambled through my brain. I shrunk into my robe, pulling it tighter and wishing it wasn't so pretty. I thought everything was to be peaceful, Ilya tried to break in, but the bully pushed ahead like an ox breaking up the soil in its path. If you don't come of your free will, I will gladly assist you. Zelazin brandished his pistol. That's wow. <laughs> that that had us in that scene. That's so horrifying. Uh, oh yeah, it's, it was horrifying. I imagine. Mm. Well, you certainly captured that. Thank you. Was there anything in this history that you learned about as you did your research and your family that you didn't want to put in the book that you might have edited out of the book? Um, actually, there was there was a lot that I didn't know uh, about that. Like, for instance, these Bolshevik partisans took over the house. My grandfather was removed and taken to prison and the soldiers were living with in the beginning with my grandmother and the family with her mother-in-law, her young daughters. I'm assuming that they, that there very likely could have been rape. <laughs> and I, of course, nobody ever talked about it and I never asked about it. Um, and that was something that I really struggled with. Should I you know, put it in because I assumed that it was there or not. Ultimately, uh, I didn't go there um, because I thought the story was pretty horrifying enough as it was. And, um, but things like that. Um, so it's, it was more things that were left out rather than things that were told that I, uh, you know, struggled over. Did you complete your research um, about this era before you began the book, or did you do it as you as no, you wrote um, I, I along? Did it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I had heard the story over and over again when I was young, and I had written this treatment, you know, back when I was in my twenties, I guess, um, and based pretty much as on what my father had told me. Um, but once I actually started writing the book, I thought I, I need to know more about this time period, and uh, and I need to include it, and. Fortunately, um, my my father's cousin had written a book. Uh, well, she had actually um, she hadn't written a book. She um, a, a journalist had written a book about the incident in Russian in 1920, 21, and um, this cousin translated it um, and published it sort of before I started working on one of the final versions, and that really. Well, it threw a real wrench into things because it it really made my father's my father told the story as if it was, you know, a sweet story. You know, I mean, it was an adventure tale, but he was eight years old and the soldiers were living in the house. And and that was how when I started reading the the chronicle of what actually happened to to the 
whole town and all the people, that's what put into my head that there must have been a lot worse than was there. And um, so it, it changed what I was writing completely um, many times. Um, but that was pretty much the only research. I, I mean, I learned about the Russian Revolution and stuff, but this incident in far eastern Siberia was not, um, it was kind of different from what was going on in central Russia because the city, it was cut off from the um, the world every year for six months, every time the river froze. And it was kind of an idyllic community that was settled by um, fur trappers and um, on, you know, gold, um, gold miners and entrepreneurs. And um, it was closer to Japan, way closer than to Moscow or um, St. Petersburg. And so they were living this really nice life. Um, you know, they had people work for them, but they didn't have serfs or anything, you know, it wasn't. And, and the people that overthrew this, the, the city were not really the workers. They were these Bolshevik, you know, they were like renegades, prisoners. And, uh, so, well, I learned a lot in the process, but yeah, I, I did it while I was doing it, which isn't what I'd recommend if you have a chance. Um, but so now when I'm writing this book about my mother and, and about the ballet world of like the 1930s and forties, I'm trying to do a lot of the research ahead of time to make it easier. So I don't have to rewrite once it's written, but, uh, what does your family think about you um, now having this career as a writer and, and putting down the family history in one one way or another? I think that they, um, I mean, they're very supportive, um, both my immediate family, my husband and children, and my extended family. Um, I think they are really appreciative to have this story written. Um, and they've shown a lot of interest and a lot of support. And they, they you know, write reviews or write, you know, um, and it's, it's very gratifying to have their support. And my husband's been great about, you know, understanding that I'm doing this not to become a bestseller, but just because I have to do it. And what about, you mentioned uh, a screenplay or, or uh, the treatment from the book. Have you completed that? Well, um, I mean, the treatment was only on the first part. Um, I have, I, I, I should I should go back and work on a treatment for the film. The problem is it's it's so difficult. You know, I mean, it's bad, hard enough to write a book and get it published, but to get a movie made, um, I really should just get the book into, you know, somebody's hands. Uh, Meryl Streep, maybe. <laughs> She'd be get. a great one. <laughs> I just listened to her read or narrate oh. her Tom Lake. So uh -huh. that, that threw me right back to the bridges of Madison County. Oh, so she, everything she does is great. She'd be great in your in your treatment as well. Right. But, you know, there, there are so many streaming services now. They're gobbling up material. So now <laughs> might be the time to reach out. That's true. Well, thank you for our, the nudge. <laughs> well, I'll you know, you we've had a great visit. And as always, our last interview question is, our writers over 50 are quite unique. Do you have advice for writers 50 and above? I would just say to go for it. Um, you have nothing to lose. Um, time is running out. Uh, 
or it's getting shorter, I should say. And, um, you know, you really have nothing to lose. Nothing else. It's it's a, a learning experience for yourself. It could be therapy. It could be enjoyment, amusement. Um, and at best, you know, other people will read your book and will learn something from it or, or um, be inspired by it. And uh, I think uh, don't, don't let lack of confidence hold you back. That's my lesson. <laughs> well, that's great advice. And I appreciate you so much being here with me today and sharing all of these varied stories that you love to tell. And we're excited to say that you're now one of our authors over 50. Thank you so much. It's been a delight to be with you. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.